Hidden behind 19th century brick walls along Nolita's Prince and Mulberry Streets is the only Catholic cemetery in Manhattan. This is the final resting place of New Yorkers from all walks of life. Civil War soldiers, philanthropic families, freed slaves, and a man who witnessed a Catholic miracle. I'm Casey Candela, and this is Fordham Conversations. All right, Casey, so we're now uh, in the South Cemetery of the Basilica of St. Patrick's Old Cathedral. You see all the tombstones dispersed here, mostly illegible. The, uh, the sandstone and limestone uh, markers have all but completely eroded away. But if we could read them, I mean, they, they would tell us a story. Most of these date back to the 1850s and 60s. You have mostly Irish uh, folks buried out here. You have German, French, and English as well. Uh, some of the members of uh, the Fighting 69th. And who were they? Oh, you ever hear the term the Fighting Irish? Yeah, like Notre Dame. Exactly, yeah. Well, they got it from the 69th Regiment. During the Civil War, this was a detachment here in New York made up mostly of Irish immigrants. And uh, most of these newly arriving immigrants would be signed up as conscripts right on the spot there and handed a rifle and put on a ship to go fight the war. And uh, a famous general from the South by the name of General Robert E. Lee uh, came across the Fighting 69th. Well, they were just the 69th Regiment at that time, but he's the one that dubbed them the Fighting Irish because they were so tough. And uh, A couple of them are buried here? A handful of the Fighting 69th Regiment is right here in our cemeteries. Uh, you know, the St. Patrick's Day parade that the ancient order of Hibernians introduced to New York used to end here at Old St. Pat's. There are some famous uh, paintings of the 69th Regiment, the Fighting Irish, marching around the walls here. And uh, it's said that if you're out here at the right time of day with the wind wisping through the tombstones that you can hear the footsteps of the marching 69th. So there's some pretty tall walls around the um, the churchyard here. Why need such thick, tall, you know, what are these, six feet tall brick walls around a church in New York City? Yeah, I'm glad you asked. That's actually, we have two walled cemeteries on either side of the, uh, the church. There are no windows on the front of it as well. So the Five Points was a neighborhood made up of all the newly arriving immigrants, and everybody gelled into their little ethnic groups there. And uh, that's how all the gangs had popped up. Now, the most famous and feared of these gangs were the nativists. And the nativist movement were first and second generation born Americans, New Yorkers, that didn't like immigrants. Now, New York was not a Catholic-friendly town, and they especially didn't like the, uh, the Irish Catholics that were flooding the city because of the potato famine. The walls were built so that the church had a defense from those gangs from burning it down. It was actually the man responsible for establishing what would become Fordham University back when it was uh, St. John's Seminary College, Archbishop John Hughes, or Dagger John as he became known as, because he was such a tough Irishman, uh, would call in the AOH, the Ancient Order of Hibernians, as a militia to man these walls and to defend the church from the nativists. The nativists were never successful in burning this church down. They did burn down 12 Catholic churches from Philadelphia to New York here back in 1844, uh, but a tiny little candle burned it down in 1866. So what we have today is actually uh, the 1868 reconstruction of the cathedral. 
So this was an immigrant's church? It was and still is, believe it or not. I mean, you're talking about a parish that started off made up of mostly Irish, uh, French, and uh, German immigrants, became Italian when the neighborhood grew into Little Italy, and then Dominican and Spanish for a while, and now today, every Sunday, we have Mass in English, Spanish, Chinese. We have a Chinese Catholic congregation growing here. And the sister church to the parish is now Most Precious Blood on the south end of Little Italy. We have Mass in Vietnamese down there. So it's still a church of immigration. It's adapted and evolved to the changing landscape here. Wow, what an important piece of New York City history. I see a few new headstones, but a lot of old ones that, you know, you can't make out the writing and they're sinking into the ground. Are there any famous New Yorkers here or, you know, New Yorkers who had an impact on the city and changed changed it to make it the way it is today? Definitely. Um, most of those folks, though, we're going to find when we get down to the catacombs beneath the basilica. But right here is a um, the O'Connor Cenotaph. Now, do you know what a cenotaph is? No, I don't. All right, so a cenotaph is actually a large monument like we see in front of us here that's sitting on top of a staircase down to empty crypts. There are empty vaults below this stone. Now, a cenotaph is usually much larger, usually in the middle of a city or a square, and it represents a famous battle in history where all the people it represents are buried in other places. But here, we have a cenotaph for a very affluent uh, family of politicians. Uh, one of the O'Connors actually ran for uh, presidency during the Civil War and uh, congressman as well. So we're looking at this maybe 10 feet tall column with a big cross on top and the names of the different O'Connors inscribed into the side. And you're telling me there's a staircase underneath this with a crypt? Yeah, so I don't know if you brought your shovel, but uh, if you did, <laughs> we can dig in this area right in front of it and there would be a big slate slab. And if you were to lift that slab up, a staircase down to dark, empty vaults. Wow, that's spooky. Yeah, well, I mean, these are empty, but uh, believe it or not, some of the other larger uh, tombstones out here are actually sitting on top of crypts that do have bodies in them. So if we were to go down those stairs, then we would meet the residents below. And then the newer uh, units out here, these are columbaria first two columbaria that they've installed of many more that will go around the perimeter of both walls here and down in the catacombs. These are niches for cremations. So this project began with the restoration of the basilica back in 2013. Uh, the old St. Pat's has revived the tradition of Christian burial. And you couldn't always be cremated in the Catholic faith. That changed back in uh, 1968, I believe. And so every niche can fit one to two urns inside. Wow, so you really have such a mix of old New York and these old tombstones and new ones where, you know, residents and um, parishioners of the church can be totally intertwined with that history. It's still being written, our story, is it not? And if you look at the names here in our, uh, in our niches, it's a very eclectic mix of nationalities. As you can see, we have Irish and German families. We have Italian and uh, Spanish, we have Filipino and Chinese. It's really a piece of the very fabric that New York City has always been and always will be. Let's head over yeah, to the North to the Cemetery. Other cemetery? Very, uh, somebody that's uh, very important historically. A little bit of an unsung hero, 
so to speak, whose story is still being written and mm -hmm. that most people don't even know about. We're now in front of the, uh, the new marker here for Mr. John Curry, uh, who was the youngest of the 15 witnesses to the apparition of Knock. Now, over in Knock, Ireland, back in 1879, 15 people, including John, who was only five years old at that time, saw a Eucharistic vision of Jesus on the side of a church wall. Now, Eucharistic means that Jesus was seen as the Lamb of God, as a baby lamb. Um, and uh, he lived a very modest life after immigrating to the States here, out in Long Island. He was buried in an unmarked grave, and a couple of years ago, our Cardinal, Cardinal Dolan, decided to have a proper ceremony and burial for him. So this past May 13th, we had a beautiful requiem mass here with just under a thousand people, including the Prime Minister of Ireland. Uh, he had an entourage including a 30-piece orchestra and choir, all of Mr. Curry's living relatives. Uh, you had the Hibernians and, uh, and the, uh, the Knights of Columbus here as well. And it was a dark, rainy day, just like it was the day the vision had been seen. And today, you have a big shrine over in Knock, Ireland, with over 7 million pilgrims that travel there every year. And now that Mr. Curry is with us, I've had a handful of pilgrims uh, visit within the last several months now. Wow, you'd never think that a New York City church in Nolito would be a pilgrimage site. Yeah, absolutely. From the south graveyard of Old St. Patrick's Cathedral in Nolita, we're off to the North Cemetery to visit the graves of New Yorkers from centuries past. So which cemetery are we in right now? So we're now in the North Cemetery of the campus here, and we're right in front of the modest little marker here for the Toussaint family. Now, Pierre Toussaint was a slave over in San Domingo. Uh, it was brought here by the Burrard family in uh, 1787. And uh, the husband, uh, Mr. Burrard, traveled back over to San Domingo to save his property because that's when the uprising of newly freed slaves had taken place. And he died while he was there, and his wife was left here with no income. Now, one of the only professions you can get into as a slave back then was hairdressing. And Pierre became a very talented hairdresser. He was doing the hair of Mrs. Hamilton and the Livingstons and... You know, he really tapped into the cream of society and in some cases was charging a thousand dollars for elaborate hairdos. And that's in prices back then, not a not thousand dollars today? No, I, I would say that was equivalent to, in, okay. to today, yeah. I, if yeah. you were getting a thousand dollars for That's pretty expensive today, for a haircut. That's pretty good for yourself, yeah. yeah. And I would say that we're all in the wrong profession. Right. But um, that was one of the only trades you can get into as a slave back then and he became very wealthy doing it and was able to support the estate and uh, was granted freedom uh, in 1807, and he was a parishioner of St. Peter's. A big benefactor of the church donated a very large sum of money to have the cathedral built. And uh, usually to become a saint, you have to have some kind of miracle tied into that event, or a vision, or an apparition. But uh, here an exception was made because of the kind of challenges that he faced, going from a slave out in what's now known as Haiti to becoming an successful entrepreneur here in a country that wasn't even uh, welcoming to him. And in 1990, he was uh, moved up to the second stage of sainthood. He's now the venerable Pierre Toussaint. And in 96, he was removed from the grave here and reburied three stories underground below the altar of the new cathedral 
in the crypts where only cardinals and archbishops are laid to rest. So not only is he the only layman down there with the archbishops and cardinals, he's the only African-American and uh, awaiting sainthood now. Wow, what an interesting story. And we're just, we're in a graveyard in Olita. And to know that his entire family is here and he overcame so much in his life is just so quintessentially New York, but still just so amazing to hear. Now, I've been told stories, and I know that there are books out there about an apparition that wanders the halls of the catacombs here and out in the cemeteries, and they've always attributed that to having been the Venerable Pierre, but I don't see why Pierre would be here since his body is not here. And since he's on the road to sainthood, what does he have to, to be mourning about? If anything, it's probably his wife has been left behind that would be wandering. Well, we'll have to go into the catacombs and see if we uh, see anybody down there wandering around. Yeah, why don't we work our way down there now? Okay. So we're looking at a, a four-story red brick building that, you know, is just as beautiful as the other buildings, but looks a little bit older. And on the front it says, 14th Ward Industrial School of the Children's Aid Society. What we're looking at right now is the old 14th Ward Industrial School. Uh, this was uh, built in 1888 and belonged to the Astors, uh, one of the most prominent uh, German families here in New York. You had the Astors and the Schermerhorns, actually connected through marriage. Mrs. Astor was a Schermerhorn, and uh, this was her project. Uh, she wanted to have an orphanage set up for the kids there, and her husband obliged and had this beautiful uh, building established. Now. There's a story about a lot of the orphanages in uh, New York being tied to what was known as the orphan train. Now, the orphan train uh, were all these kids in these orphanages taken from poor neighborhoods like the Five Points here that would be uh, shipped out on the trains out to the Midwest to be put on the fields and on the uh, plantations there to work for their own keep. So it was the first iteration of child labor out here. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. I'm Casey Candela, talking with tour guide Tommy Wilkinson. From the North Graveyard, we descend into the catacombs below the Basilica, the final resting place of some prominent New Yorkers. Others, such as Dagger John Hughes, are there no longer, but the marble still bears his name. We're now in what's called the Undercroft. This is the antechamber outside of the catacombs here. Uh, slightly remodeled here. They've exposed the original foundation walls here. Uh, that's actually called New York Twisted, a combination of schist and cement. Schist is the rock that you're going to find all throughout Manhattan here, like up in Central Park. You can see remnants of the old fire from 1866 up there embedded in the walls. And this is actually a new entrance that was cut into this old wall to give us access from the Undercroft here. Um, you'll see the other entrance, uh, the original entrance on the Mott Street side. These are some big wooden doors. And they're heavy, too. All right, so walking down the center corridor here, we're passing by the Lynch Vault here on the right. That was a very wealthy Irish uh, family that immigrated here. They were wine merchants. 
You have Dominic Lynch Sr. and Jr. Uh, Sr. was actually one of the original trustees of St. Peter's, and uh, his son Jr. introduced Italian opera to the United States. You can see we have French vaults down here as well, and you'll find German and English, but mostly Irish. It was mostly an Irish parish. So what's a vault? Because we're walking down this, this hallway with these white walls and just what, what looks like a tombstone, you know, in the wall. But, you know, really nothing else, just a few sparse markers. But what's behind these walls? First of all, catacombs really just means underground cemetery. Uh, the term was first used over in Rome under Appian Way back at the beginning of the 19th century. That's where they believe the apostles Peter and Paul are laid to rest. And it's a collection of tombs. So what we're looking at right now, we're standing in front of a crypt stone. And this crypt stone is hermetically sealed. And uh, it, just beyond the stone is actually a room or a vault or the crypt. And that's where the bodies are laid to rest. So we have a collection of crypts or vaults here. And I said hermetically sealed. That means they're airtight. So the air we're breathing out here isn't actually mixing with the air inside the vault. So each one of these is literally a time capsule that hasn't been disturbed in over 100 years. If you were a wealthy family in the 1700s or 1800s in New York City, why would you want your family to be buried underneath a church? Well, I think it was a very prestigious uh, thing to be offered. These families donated large sums of money to have the very first cathedral of the archdiocese built. So this is a very special and sacred place because you are underneath the nave of the church. And um, maybe it's symbolic because they're actually these, the ones that supported the church. And here they're within the very walls that are the foundation that support the church. Like I said, there's mostly Irish families here. There's not too many Italians. We actually only have one Italian family vault because by the time the Italians started to immigrate to the States here in the 1880s, these vaults were already full. Some of the vaults have only two people within it, others over 12 members of the family inside. And um, there are 33 family vaults. There are five clerical vaults for the clerics or priests. We're actually standing in front of one of those clerical vaults here. But it looks different than the others because they tore the walls of this vault down and built these two sarcophaguses, an Egyptian term, if you've ever been to the Egyptian wing of a museum. And we have two parish priests here, Tommaso and Marinacci, two monsignors, and a beautiful sculpture of Jesus on the crucifix done by Benedetto Rabaza. That's only here now a month. This was actually a donation from a handful of the parishioners. And they're right next door to the Episcopal vault. The term Episcopal, not to be confused with Episcopalians, means bishop. And this is the very vault where Archbishop John Hughes was first laid to rest. And he died in 1864. He was the man responsible for having the cathedral up on Fifth Avenue built. And when that opened in 1879, he was removed from this vault and in a big procession brought up to the new cathedral. So is there anyone in this vault? So this vault is now empty, and it's going to always remain empty. It's symbolic because Archbishop Hughes was uh, very important historically to, uh, to not only to this church, but to the archdiocese. 
Well, it seems like he got a little, little grave upgrade when he moved uptown. But I wonder if he ever comes back and visits. Well, I, I'll be the first to know because nobody spends more time down here in the catacombs than the people that are here permanently now. All right, so we're now in front of the only Italian family vault here. This is the world-famous Delmonico family, uh, the family that introduced the hospitality industry to the United States. They actually immigrated from the Italian region of Switzerland over the border of Italy is an area known as Ticino. And there were 12 members of the family inside the vault. Everybody during the Gilded Age would sit down and have a Delmonico steak. They were actually uh, responsible for creating Eggs Benedict, or the Benedict couple that used to frequent the restaurant. But uh, there's only one Delmonico restaurant left today down on Beaver Street. No longer owned by the family. They're not in the restaurant business here in New York. Another clerical vault. Oh. Right, so that's the only clerical vault still intact and laid to rest within are about 20 priests stacked in simple pine boxes there. From what century of the church's um, existence? Uh, I would say that would be late 19th century going into 20th. And where we are right now is uh, a vault that was originally two clerical vaults, empty and reserved for future burial. But we're not going to put anybody down here anymore. Uh, no more priests. They all go out to Calvary now. So with this recent restoration, the church decided to create a unique opportunity. And this is now a family vault available for up to 10 members of a family for a small donation of $7 million. Wow. Here's the O'Connor vault. Remember so, we talked about the cenotaph outside? So this looks like a bank vault. It is a big black door. It says O'Connor on it, and it looks like it should have a huge, huge deadbolt on it. So is this what's below what we were standing by earlier? No, the cenotaph would simply have a staircase down to empty stone vaults, uh, but the O'Connors, having been very affluent, uh, decided to have a steel door installed on their vault, which means it's not hermetically sealed. It has a key. Can't find that key, but if we could open it, and look inside, there might be a little chapel in the back, but there would be marble sarcophaguses in there as well. So the whole O'Connor family is in this vault? Yes. And nobody's ever wanted to pick the lock and see what's inside? Well, I mean, as you can see, it looks like somebody over the years has tried to, but um, I think we really don't need to look inside this vault because I have a beautiful uh, vault that we're gonna go inside here in a moment. Wow, can't wait. The most famous member of the catacombs would be John Kelly from Tammany Hall. He was the successor to Boss Tweed, our most famous Tammany Hall member. Now, you know, Boss Tweed and his associates are said to have st stolen $200 million from the city back in the 1860s. And when Samuel Tilden finally had him prosecuted, uh, John Kelly was put in place of the uh, association. Now, John was once a uh, sheriff and congressman, had a squeaky clean reputation, so they called him Honest John Kelly, because Tammany Hall had a bad rep to clean up, and well, he's laid to rest here, and he still has family that come to visit the vault periodically. That's a pretty good nickname, Honest John Kelly. Yeah, well, that, that was more of a propaganda stunt than anything else, I'm sure. <laughs> I think Dagger John's a bit of a cooler nickname. Well, you know, the, 
The reason he got that nickname was, uh, you know, because of his tough Irish personality and uh, because of the way he signed his name. You ever see his signature? Right. He put the um, the dagger at the or the cross at the end because he was a bishop. Yes. Yeah. But the way he did it kind of resembled a dagger. So we're standing outside a vault, and it says 1904. Again, it looks like a bank vault with two big black doors. And so we're going to go in, right? We're going to go inside the... Yeah, well, you guessed it. Yeah, this one we could actually step inside. Uh, this one's larger than all the other vaults. This one's the size of four of all the other vaults we've seen. Uh, General Thomas Eckert uh, from the Civil War uh, was in charge of the lines of communication. Now, he didn't see any combat, but uh, he was in charge of the telegraph lines and he was a very close friend of Abraham Lincoln. He was actually with him the night of the assassination. And uh, he was his confidant. In Eckert's memoirs, he mentions how Lincoln drew up the very first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation on his desk. And uh, after the war, he went on to become the president of Western Union, a telegraph company. And he spent $83,000 on this family vault in 1904. Wow, so this is his family vault, and he's buried here? Uh, yeah, four members of his family are laid to rest here, and uh, we're going to take a peek inside. Great. Is that the original lighting fixture from 1904? Yeah, believe it or not, it's uh, Thomas Edison light fixtures there. And uh, we do have in our possession the original Thomas Edison light bulbs that still work. But you're looking at replicas there that only last a couple of months. And as I said before, there's only four people laid to rest here. There's room for 12. But Thomas actually divorced his first wife that he was married to down in the Carolinas. And getting divorced back in the 19th century wasn't very popular. He moved up north here. He remarried a woman by the name of Joanna. And so it's Thomas... Joanna and his wife's parents, Eliza and Christopher, here. If this is a 12-person vault, why did they only bury four people in here? Well, you see the, the array. You have Thomas on one side with seven other vaults, and uh, you have only three people on this side. So Thomas is over here in case anybody from that original marriage wanted to be laid to rest here as well. And they didn't? No. So is this the original, like, brickwork? Yeah, so that's the original Gustavino tile, the brown and green tile work here. You have an original gas lamp fixture there on the floor. And over here is a chapel that was donated uh, by Thomas Eckert Jr., by his son, so people could pay their respects when visiting. Well, it's a beautiful vault. It feels like you're walking right back into 1904. Yeah, and uh, yeah, the condition is, is pristine. So I guess... My last question is, you know, you do tours down here all the time, Tommy. Have you ever heard any strange noise or, like, seen anything suspicious or? All the time, constantly. As a matter of fact, so I partnered with the church back in February and uh, started to come up with uh, the idea for a candlelight tour down here because it just, it just brings it back to that period because... When this first opened up as catacombs in 1815, there, weren't, there was no electricity. And uh, you, know, you would have come down here with torches. So it kind of brings it back to, uh, to the early days. And so I would be walking through here trying to get inspired and build this narrative and all. And there was one occasion where 
I had walked all the way in, no lights, got to the far end of the catacombs there, and then something happened. I felt a coldness on one side of my uh, body, and I, I could have sworn I caught a glimpse of something in the corner of my eye, and my heart stopped. And I said to myself, no, Tommy, you've had too much coffee, get it together, you can do this. And then it happened again, and I turned around and ran out of here so fast, and it took me literally over two weeks to be able to come down here unaccompanied again with the lights on. And so, like I said, I, I spend more time down here than anybody. I'm, I'm here seven days a week doing this. and uh, The only living person who spends the most time down here. Exactly. But if those things keep happening, then I'm going to be the newest addition to the catacombs. That's pretty, pretty crazy. Yeah, and as far as sounds go, I mean, it's an old church. I mean... There's always sounds that, you know, you try to define what it is and all, and, you, you know, you really can't find an answer to it all. Um, you know, people are always coming down and taking photos, and, you know, there's, there's always something interesting that pops up in these photos and all. So, you know, this is still a very spiritual place, but, uh, you know, there's so much history here as well. And... Uh, you know, it's definitely worth coming out and answering for yourself. Special thanks to my guest, Tommy Wilkinson, and producer, Marina Koff. You can like Fordham Conversations on Facebook or subscribe to us on iTunes and catch up on the shows you've missed. For WFUV's Fordham Conversations, I'm Casey Candela.